Hi everyone and welcome back to the Palmer podcast. Uh, I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Really great to have you all back here again. I'm, I'm really excited you're here um, and hope you're all well. And today we have a new guest and um, as always with new guests, I'm always really excited to welcome new guests to the show and have new conversations with new people. And uh, today uh, is really, really um, exciting for me um, because we're talking to Virginia Spots. Uh, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Yeah, um, and the reason I'm really excited to have you here, especially, is because um, uh, Virginia is just trained as a death jeweler mm-hmm. um, and is also um, a podcaster and a writer and uh, an actress as well. Yes, um, <laughs> and so. We're going to be talking a lot about the intersections between grief and death and creativity today. So um, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I know, me too. These are the things that I love talking about the most. So um, you know, like all my favorite subjects combined. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, and that's why I do all, all of that, <laughs> finding a way to work in all of those things. I know. And um, I mean, like death in particular is something we don't talk about a lot. And uh, so... Um, yeah, and I don't think I really want to talk, want people to talk about more. But I know why people don't talk about it much because it's not a nice thing to think about. But, uh, but yeah, um, but it's an important thing. So, so tell us a bit of your story. Like, how did you get into like um, what were your experiences of of like grief and, and death that kind of led you into doing uh, the training that you've done? Uh, so I feel like the The thing that set all of this off really is four years ago, I went through a stillbirth and uh, that would have been my first baby. And I lost him in the 36th week of the pregnancy. It was actually due month and it was totally unexpected. Um, We knew that there were like some minor health concerns at the time and that's all we thought it was. And then it ended up being like, yeah, ended up ending his life. Um, so sorry. Yeah. And I, um, I went through a C-section and I had to have emergency bladder surgery and, uh, me and my husband were, you know, mourning him and I was recovering for a while. I had a recovery that was about six weeks long and it really did like take that whole time for me to really feel, uh, normal. But the, the people that were helping me during that time, like the nurses and the doctors that we had and like my massage therapist, my trauma therapist, all these people that were gathering around me, um, all of them women, coincidentally, which I feel like was a very uh, special part of the healing that I did. Um, They all contributed to me in such a knowledgeable and empathetic way that it stayed with me and it like really got me deep to see like how capable they were of showing up in those super dark places with me. Um, And it really inspired me to want to do something where I'd be working with grief and working with the dying. Because as I was experiencing my own grief, I just almost immediately, I felt the, the creative power of my grief. Sort of like I remember... In the in the split second where the doctor told me there was no heartbeat, I felt this like 
almost this physical wrenching inside of me where I was deciding to pull myself up the mountain. I wasn't going to let myself fall down the mountain, if that makes sense. I was like, I'm going to keep climbing because I had spent so much time up to that point in my life building and building and building and trying to get myself away from just different factors that I feel like had already sort of threatened to pull me down into like despair. And I was like, I'm not going to go back, not even for this. I started my grieving process with really tending to like what felt like a, a pilot light of hope and generative energy inside of me. And it was something that I knew nobody else could see but me um, that early, especially. And there were people around me in my life at the time who put a lot of weird pressure on me. They wanted to see me doing more things to prove that I was getting better. I mean, these were people who themselves were very uncomfortable with grief. So that was sort of a weird um, thing <laughs> that I was surrounded by at the time. But I that allowed me to sort of shed um, a lot of my people-pleasing tendencies because I was like, no, I believe me, though. Like, I know I have this fire inside. It is growing. I will act when I'm ready to act. And I have unshakable faith in that and I'm growing something here. And so I've spent the past four years um, letting that fire grow bigger and bigger and like taking risks that were meaningful to me. Um, I think within six months after the stillbirth, actually, I was already back to some like local acting in some way. I was in like a little murder mystery in the town that I was in. And started connecting with more creative people because that was a real reassurance to me. I have a background in theater and writing. And it was it was just really, really soothing to my soul to get to pretend to be these people that were completely different. Like the character I was playing in this murder mystery was like a mega bitch that everybody hated. Everybody killed me. <laughs> and I can't describe how amazing it was to get to just discharge that much playful negative energy at an audience and to like lean into it and feel the audience boo me because they're having fun it was like it was somehow that was like the most relieving thing to me when I was that deep in my grief to just like be a big hateable clown it was it was so fun mm-hmm. yeah I've, I've- I've always wondered, actually, because I know I know that as a writer, I, I've found that journaling, writing, you know, has always helped me process emotions. Mm. I've always wondered what it'd be like for actors, because it, it like, and then that's really that's a really interesting insight because it, I guess, like you can go when you're in a when you're in that that moment, you can go to a, you can actually be. You could take all that dark energy, like dark energy, I suppose. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that is <laughs> what it felt like. All that kind of anger that, that's part of grief. You can uh-huh. take it all and just put it into this character yep. and give that character to the world. Like, And then it's out of your body in a way. It's like a way of exercising that kind of negative energy like, because anger is part of grief. I mean, there's a kind. I think there's a kind yeah. of anger that, that you only have in grief it's kind of it's not even anger really it's just grief um and they it's important to let that out somehow Mm -hmm. um 
<laughs> yeah. So it's and that, that must be a different, difficult balance as well because I suppose I don't know. I'm not an actor, but like if you're playing a negative, you're really in character. Like how do you? And you're having your, your it's, a, it's that kind of character. How do you kind of leave that at the theatre, as it were, and then come home and just leave that there? Like, how do you separate that? Because I know a lot of actors have struggled with that sometimes. Like, yeah, um, I feel like one big thing that's always been really helpful for me is to not lean into method acting. Like, I don't really agree with like pulling from your own life to do something for acting or or taking those characteristics into the rest of your life when you're not on stage because I feel like that's just codependency with your role like that's not if you're if you're changing yourself I don't know if that's really the craft of acting so much as it is like a sort of psychosis <laughs> so <laughs> I yeah yeah so I I tend to see acting as like a I mean, especially as I've done more audio acting, because it's really just like, you know, I have three takes to get something right in a scene. So I really have to get into it, do it, take some notes, do it again, take some notes, do it again. And that's it. So I don't really have the time to really like marinate in all of that stuff. So I feel like my immediacy has gotten a lot sharper and it's more of like showing up for a ritual is what it feels like and practicing just like being flexible to the moment and then you leave that behind and you continue with your normal day uh and in some ways i think like voice acting is great because um i don't know it it really is mostly just like thinking about how to portray something in your voice and it's it's pretty fast for that reason like there's yeah there's not all the physical stuff you don't have the blocking to learn so I feel like especially for voice acting, it's been good practice on how to just like show up for something and then not obsess over it. So, um, yeah, I don't mm, know. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and I think did it's you find, did you find that process was was healing and would it yes. allow you to process your grief? Yeah, I um, I started uh, after that murder mystery finished. I there was uh, somebody, the person who was playing my assistant in the murder mystery, ironically, started doing some audio dramas. Uh, their name is Van Winkle. Um, they're a fantastic writer, producer, creative. And um, they were doing some anthology audio stories that they were writing under the podcast Homestead on the Corner. And then they started uh, this series, this idea for like a horror anthology character-driven series in March 2020 when the pandemic started because they wanted a way to be able to still do storytelling but in a way that would maybe be easier for remote recording because the idea was like there's mostly one person telling a story and then there's some reactions around it um and I was part of that initially as like the sister of this writer who goes missing and over time, I, I eventually, I joined the writing team at the end of season one, and I've been like co-producing and writing since that point. And we're finishing um, our fourth season this year. Uh, we're actually, we're starting our fourth season tomorrow, the time we're recording this, and we'll be ending with episode 100. So it's been, that's how much of this show we've made. Um, and I've gotten to write my character, Kate, as like 
this person who is going through her own um her own stuff of like figuring out the balance between family and what feels like a more personal like adventure mission for her and like how much of herself is still there after the sacrifices she made to get her family going and like how does she carry that balance forward and I feel like those are questions I've been like wrestling with myself um Kate uh also comes out as queer during the show she is like you know mentions deconstructing her faith during the show like there, there's a bunch of stuff from our own lives we put in there because it's just it's very relevant to us and it seems to resonate with our audience so that's wonderful um so it's like, ironically, in the way that I've written, you could say I've taken some of those method acting principles and I've let those boundaries become a little bit muddy. But I, at least I, I was doing it consciously. At the end of the day, I had to decide, do I want to put this in or not? So I, I did get to decide like, oh, yeah, I'm comfortable with letting that part of me be in Kate or like, you know, I wasn't like writing an autobiography. Uh, I'm not an accountant and I've never lived in Iowa. So, you know. Uh, so yeah just like doing that just having something that required that much of me uh, I've written like over 30 episodes uh, of the Sheridan tapes it the writing schedule has in time has at times been very intense production has at times been very intense um, it's sort of wrung me out in a good way and I've had to figure out better like self-care and coping skills along the way because I was not seeing anything this big coming for me and then all of a sudden I was in it um so basically working on that and like writing what is essentially a horror series a horror mystery we're talking about death a lot we're talking about fear a lot we're talking about grief and loss a lot and it like I just kept feeling, especially in the last year and a half, this reminder that I really wanted to do something with grief, really wanted to do something with dying. And that like creative stuff was really important for me just to be like a functional person. I feel like <laughs> I need that outlet. I need to create stuff. I need to write. I need to act. Um, but the thing that I felt like was my mission was to work with death. And I started following um, this, uh, these educators that call themselves the Death Wives. They're based out of Denver, Colorado. And they had a discount on what they call their death school. And I was like, that's rad. Why not? I'll just do this. Um, I started dating my girlfriend last year, and she is in school to become a midwife. And so we, we've always talked about how it's so cool that she's a midwife and I'm learning how to be like a death wife essentially. And it's like, um, I feel that real inspiration from her to like really go after the things that I feel like are important to me. And, um, and I realized by going through the process of this death school with like, we did some ancestry work. We did some like learning about practical death care, like how to care for a body, how to handle stuff with funeral homes how to work with the family to like build a funeral that feels meaningful and then even how to like plan death with people. Um, it just started highlighting 
things in me that I feel like were finally uniquely resonating with something that creative work didn't quite touch. Um, so yeah, I am in the process of figuring out what my specific things will be, but even, I mean, the, their whole philosophy, the death wives is that death care is for everybody. You know, it used to be something that just families did for their own. Everybody did for their own. And so just being aware of that now, I have been able to see where my uh, like empathy for death and my knowledge of death stuff has been helpful for friends who are going through this with their parents. And um, so that is a way I've started to work with that just immediately, you know, just being able to be a resource and like look things up for people find them the resources that they need in their area and be like an empathetic listening ear for all of the grief that they're going through. So, um, yeah. And then recently there is a lot of personal life things that are developing for me that, uh, I am currently grieving. So it's a little too fresh to talk about, but it is like, I'm remembering all over again, what it feels like to be inactive grief, like where time doesn't quite make sense. And I'm, you know, I'm a great one afternoon. And then that evening I'm sobbing. It's like <laughs> that sort of thing all over again. Um, mm. So here yeah. I am fresh. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. I resonate a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I, listeners of the show will know my story already, but um, I lost my mother when I was 23 years old, mm. um, 23 years ago. Oh, um, wow. Um, so um, that was my big experience of, of grief that kind of set me on this path of exploring grief. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, my dad, my dad almost died um, last Christmas. He almost died again this summer. Um, he's in his late seventies, and we know that he's probably not oh, like too long left. So we know he's in that season of life. So mm. you're kind of having that grief before the grief, you know. Um, yeah, that anticipatory um, grief. Yeah, yeah. And I've had a couple of other relatives die in the last eighteen months as well. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, it's yeah, it's an interesting thing when you've been through it already, and then you, and you go through it again, or you, or you're almost going through it again. Um, and I talked about it with my sister actually we talked about how we can set things up to make sure that we are able to grieve well and when dad passes you know um, that's good because we, don't wanna, we want to learn from what we did what happened before yeah because we made some mistakes before because we were young <laughs> and we'd never experienced that and yeah. you're not really you're not really mentally as a parent when you're in your 20s you know it's um, right. nobody expects that so yeah, so only what I'm saying is I'm res- I, I kind of resonate with that kind of recurring feeling of it's, it's coming back, um, mm. you know. Um, yeah. And it is, I'm really glad that you found something that can help you um, process that. Um, I, I've definitely found a lot of comfort in supporting other people who've had to go through difficult, you know, grieving situations. Um, mm-hmm. and actually sometimes sharing stories with them it means and is good because you hear things that you went through that other people have been through as well mm-hmm. and 
when that happens, it kind of makes you feel less alone. Certainly mm-hmm. for me, um, having because I had a series on this podcast where people came and shared stories of grief, and you know, when I kept hearing things that we had in common, it was actually quite comforting um, for both of both sides, both people. So, um, so yeah. I mean, I'm interested as well, like having obviously been through a lot of grief and going through grief. When you're doing this training, and when you're, you know, were there any kind of triggers to your own grief experience, or was it, was it more of a therapeutic thing? It it was therapeutic, but it's funny that you say that because we did some like, you know, practiced planning some funerals and like responses, like what would you offer them as a death doula, sort of scenarios in our classes. And very unexpectedly, the second example for each time we did that was a stillbirth. And I didn't see that one coming. And then afterwards, the teachers were like, oh, we're so sorry. We should have given you a heads up. But there was a part of that that I was actually really grateful I didn't have a heads up because that is realistic. (laughs) Um, And there were things that I was able to pull from my own experience to advise like my like fellow classmates on and then the teachers also who were there who were like oh you know what I never thought about recommending like massage therapy and somatic trauma therapy to women who have just experienced to people who have just experienced a stillbirth but that's actually a really good point so there are things that I feel like I was able to contribute once I got over that initial panic of like I don't want to talk about stillbirth right now for somebody who's just lost the baby because I it's like a memory of how all-consuming that grief was. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just a loss. It was a loss plus I feel like my body is a graveyard. And I had to really reckon with that. Um, and I feel like something that's really helped me with that haunted feeling of like a person died in my body is just becoming more comfortable with any possible integration in in like the media I consume, the stories I let into my life, just anything that ties together death and life and how it just they're inexplicably tied together in in everything. I think I just had to get very comfortable with death. I had to get comfortable with life too. I had to get comfortable with actually making choices that were full of life for myself. Like it was, I didn't feel like I had an option to play small anymore <laughs> because the fears that I was facing were big. So um, I think really just like death being present in my life is like a reason to keep doing things that make me feel alive. It's a reason to keep going after big artistic projects and to keep pushing myself and to keep creating stuff because it will just end one day and I might not get a heads up about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's like, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's wonderful. And it's like, um, (sighs) uh, grief has been my best teacher of all of the teachers I've had. It's really, really taught me how to appreciate this. Yeah. 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 I resonate with that a lot. Mm -hmm. Grief has definitely been, has probably been my best teacher as well. Um, I've learned more about 
why it's so important to be fully present, why mm-hmm. you have to make the most of every moment, um, every opportunity, every experience. Yeah. Um, and to, to find joy. Um, uh, I had a guest on called Rob Bell, and uh, one of the things that he said in one of the things that he's in one of his talks is lower the bar for joy. Um, yes. <laughs> just like look for joy wherever you can, every little thing and remember it and capture it and claim it because, uh, you know, one day we're all going to be dust, you know, <laughs> uh, we're going to be vapor. Like it's, it's so true. Um, yeah. And so I, I think one thing that grief allowed me to do was let go of expectations and and you know and um, doing things to, to gain some kind of reward at the end of it. Like I just, the more I processed my grief, the more I was able to just enjoy things for what they are, like creative things, especially like because I before I started, I did I I didn't deal with my grief for a long time, and in that time I used writing to try and cover that up and fill that hole and being successful as a writer I tried to I thought if I can be successful as a writer I you know I don't have to think about the pain anymore and everyone will love me anyway um well I didn't know this well at the time <laughs> I didn't know this at the time but this is what I was doing and um so when I had a big failure it was uh it was a disaster I I was you know I just collapsed on the floor and I had nothing left I was just I didn't know what to do but that was the beginning of my healing. Yeah. And now and I had to stop writing for a while and I'm now starting to come back to it because I'm beginning to just enjoy it for what it is and enjoy writing, which is what I actually, what, what I actually want to do. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in a career or, a, you know, being a best-selling author or anything like that. Like if those things happen by accident, okay, but I'm not going to go looking for them. You know, I just want to enjoy writing. Um, and that's liberating because it, it gives, you can just find joy in the moment and not have to think about what it means or the future or whatever. Um, yeah, those milestones are not the thing. The thing is the, the creating itself and the journey and just allowing yeah. yourself to be a human who experiences creativity is a normal part of existing. Like that's, that's it. That's it. And that's good, you know? I love that. Yeah, I mean that—that's the whole thing. I started this podcast really out of curiosity. I had no interest in, like, no dreams of being a podcaster or whatever. I just was curious as to what it would be like, and it turned into this thing that I love doing. And I just—and I never look at the numbers on my podcast. I just like—I just like talking to people and listening to people and sharing stories and, and just the, the act of making them. It's a—it's uh, a joy. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're doing that because joy is so underrated and joy, joy is not a capitalistic concept. It's just a, it's a human thing. (laughs) And I I feel like uh, there's, I, I mean, I could go off on a tangent on this, but I feel like one of the main reasons that our culture doesn't talk about death is because you can't really, you can't really focus on that if you want a capitalist society to like really be hyper capitalist and because if you do that if you talk about death too much people will look for meaning in their lives people will look for things that aren't tied to like these 
you know, financial career property milestones. They'll look for like, who are the people in my life that I care about? What do I care about putting out into the world? And that might not fit into this like nine to five, everything's rosy and the capitalist machine continues to churn kind of system. And like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you can only capitalize off of death so much, which is why most of the funeral homes in the U.S. are owned by one corporation and why it is, you know, the options are limited and it is so expensive to have a funeral done when really it is legal in every single state in the U.S. to do a home funeral. And in most states, embalming is not required at all. But if you show up to funeral homes and funeral homes are amazing, we need them. But most of the time, if you show up to a funeral home, they will tell you, this is what you have to do. Like, we'll take the body. This is what you owe us. And they'll just do embalming as a regular thing. And that's not necessary. And it's not great for the earth. And so my focus is like on ecological concepts around death. Like, how can we make death something that actually contributes back to the earth that we are extracting from all the time? How can we make death something that connects a community and connects a community to the person that they just lost, not like to an idea of what you're supposed to do at funerals? Because I feel like that is like such an insulting robbery from people to to just do a standard package funeral and to not think at all about the person that you're losing and what they meant to the people who are there. Um, so yeah, those are all things I really care about and I really want to help make it better for the people who are around me, for the people that I can help. I love that. I I love that. And I agree completely. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, death rituals of grief, um, something that we've lost as a society. Like I've talked about this in another episode of this show. Um, with Amanda Held Opel, and he's written books about grief. And um, we talked about how rituals of grief kind of ended around the time of the First World War. Mm, yeah. So many people were dying, they didn't have time. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the concept of the living room, the, the, the name living room, they, those rooms used to be called parlors, and that's where they used to have like wakes for the dead, for the dead members of the family and put their bodies out. And they wanted to change the whole concept around it and thought they'd solved that the death problem. And That's so they called them living rooms instead. Like I had, know, so even, I had no idea. Yeah, I only found that out recently. It was it was I was I was blown away by it. I was like, wow. Like yeah. Because like grief witches were a big thing in the um in the nineteenth century. Um yeah. I think partly because Queen Victoria was, you know, always in grief. She was always wearing black and mm. always death of um albert her whole life pretty much and i think it became kind of fashionable almost to have rituals around grief and ceremonies around grief and uh and all of that in this country anyway certainly and yeah that kind of ended around the 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 time of the war um um yeah so it's it's yeah i mean you kind of need to reclaim that you know there's um there's something yeah, I mean, I've 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 sometimes thought about what I would what I would like when I eventually die. Hopefully, it won't be for a long time. Um, but that I want to put something in my will about like this is what we're going to do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, like, because I want people to, I don't want people, I don't want it to be just rushed through. I want it to be done in a very specific way where people can allow to grieve properly. Yes, I um, love that. Uh, I don't want people to. So, almost being my own death dealer in a way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I feel but, like um, that's really like I want people to do that more often. Um, I want people to feel that agency to write out what they want about their own death, put it in their will. Like it's really, it really is that easy. <laughs> you know, you can write out what you want your funeral to be like, how you would like people to remember you um, and put it in your will. And that's like, that is one way to make sure that you can leave the world by giving some kind of final gift to the people who are losing you, yeah. that they don't have to think about that stuff. Yeah. Um, and also giving yourself that peace of mind, knowing like, I don't know what comes between here and there, but I know what the final chapter is. I know what the epilogue is. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, to be honest, in, in the age that we're living now with like the true cost of the pandemic not really being fully visible yet. Um, Mm. I think there is going to be a lot of relevancy to everybody sort of needing to have the tools to handle death in their local communities. I think if we are just relying on the corporate systems that surround us, it's going to be a nightmare. But I think if we can enable people to um, just, just have a basic knowledge about death home funerals, how to get through all of that, how to find the resources that they need. Um, Something that is already a potential nightmare just with the the things that most people's bodies in the world have gone through now and are incubating inside of us. Um, It will at least allow it to be like some agency (laughs) as we come to the end of our lives. Not to sound totally utterly morbid i just read a lot about covid so unfortunately so that is uh something i am always thinking about um, oh yeah um, yeah I, I yeah i'm aware of yeah some of that for sure yeah um, uh, um and certainly i've talked to a lot of other people who are we do a lot of work on consciousness and um like how the world is changing and like we're Certainly, there's a. I, I, me and friends of mine get this sense of the. There's going to be a big shift in consciousness in our in Western society, mm-hmm. um, in our two countries, I think especially, mm-hmm. and people are going to have to learn how to grieve well. They're going to have to learn how to grieve, and we're going to have to do it as a society, not just as individuals. We're going to have to learn how to grieve ways of life that we've had for a long time, capitalist ways of life. Yeah. Um, yeah, and leave those behind, and we're going to need people who can help people grieve. And I hope I can be part of that. Um, I've had a lot of experience of grief um, in therapy and in kind of um, and consciousness work. I've kind of connected with ancestors and like done a lot of research on my family. And like, there's there's like a whole history of losing people at a young age in my family. Mm. Like, generations back i think um you know there's lots of generations and so i've kind of i think i've brought some of that wisdom from my ancestors as well as what i've learned and hopefully i can help other people and 
obviously that's what you're doing as well, which is really great. We, we need more people doing that mm-hmm. because we have to learn how to grieve well. That's the only to me. If we can't, well, that's that's one of the one of the things secrets to a healthy society is if we can grieve. How how do you grieve? Like if you can grieve well individually and culturally, and you can face up to the reality of who you are and what you've done and what you've been through, that will lead you ultimately to a healthier place. And like, I mean, I could go on, I I could get going here, but I think that, I think that the response to World War II is, was that the winners didn't have to deal with what they'd done, didn't have to deal with what had happened, didn't have to process it. uh, And they got to write history and um, the losers actually got, had an opportunity to face up to who they were and, deal with it and process it and heal from it and um you know germany's a very healthy nation now um mm. a very you know this, this democracy is very strong and they don't have extremist governments anymore um whereas america and the uk are kind of <laughs> a bit of a mess <laughs> it's still living in the past you know like make america great again or yeah you know, take back control you know uh, all that kind of thing brexit and yeah, I think that's part of that. That's a whole other conversation, but that's something that I've thought about a lot and that ultimately we're going to have to deal with that at some point. Yeah, it, grief must be expressed or it will be a cancer in some way. It like it, it's it's a responsibility that you're handed and it's it's a responsibility that nobody takes gratefully, but it's like you this crazy extreme energy will be coursing through you and your life and either you can find a way to surrender to it and to make something meaningful out of it or you can ignore it and it will poison everything around you and that's like i i i do worry about how um you know the western parts of the con- of the world will handle any sort of waves of grief, because honestly, it has not been great so far. There are still thousands of people in the U.S. dying every week from COVID. There's like there's been so many times in the last few years where it's like a 9-11 amount of people are dying every day. Nobody cares anymore. Nobody can be bothered to care. It is too much for people. There's no example for how to process this. The people who should be taking responsibility are not taking responsibility. And it's too much for citizens to reckon with i feel like it's too much for regular people to just go yeah thousands of people died this week when it's like there's all sorts of shit happening everywhere there's all sorts of death that is like not properly grieved there's abusing migrants at the border there is school shootings there's this covid shit there's so many things (laughs) there's so many things that are not that that healthy relationship to death is not there. Um, yep. And there's no time. There's no time given to people to take the time off to grieve the individual losses in their life either. Like, it's just a mess. It's a mess. And the only way I've seen people function as healthy people in this society is if either they've been able to buy some freedom, like financially, to, you know, create their own their own lives, their own schedule, some distance from everything that's around us so that they can show up for their relationships, they can show up for themselves. Um, or if like people intentionally choose poverty, I, I have some friends who do that because it's like it feels more balanced to them 
to be under a certain income threshold uh, to get, you know, government assistance on certain things and then to contribute meaningfully in the relationships in their lives. But it's like, it's really, really hard to be a healthy person in this world. Yeah. It's really, really, really hard. It really is. Um, it really is. And I, 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 I agree with you completely in all of that. It's, I mean, every like, like there was a every time there's a tweet about COVID and needing to bring masks back. Mm-hmm. I always look at the replies, and they're always like, they're always like, just f off, shut up, go away. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, I'm like, and I don't know whether to be angry or sad because I, I, because I'm like, I get you don't want to have to deal with this, but that doesn't stop it. Like you, but, yeah. But saying all that stuff is not going to change reality. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, you're not going to be able to say that if it's one of your family that's that's suffering as a result of this. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's just, uh, I mean, I, I went to the, I was, I was in A and E the other day, and um, and uh, I had a mask on, and nobody else did. Mm-hmm. The doctors did. The doctors did, but no, nobody else. You know, the, none of the paid people going in. To see doctors and anything about anything, none of them were wearing a mask. And my dad's been in hospital twice in the last year, and he'd never had COVID before that. He'd taken all the precautions, had all the vaccines, worn masks, everything. Um, and he went into hospital twice, and he got COVID both times he was in hospital. Oh God, I've heard that. You no, know? so and I was I'm so sorry. I still am really mad about it. Yeah, uh, he's okay. I mean, he's okay. I mean, I'm not like it's not. Fortunately. Um, Fortunately, it happened after he had the vaccines, which probably helps. Yeah. But, oh, it just made me so angry. Like, these are the places you're meant to be safe from this stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, um, and I, I just, I was, I was furious, honestly. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, but it's, but it's because people almost like, don't, he will, it, it, that's a, I actually said when COVID first happened, I said, this is a really good opportunity for us to learn how to grieve properly as a society. And I, but at the same time, I said, I don't think we will. <laughs> and, I've, and I've been right. Unfortunately, I didn't want to be right about that. I wanted this. I saw that, like, how this could be a really great thing for us to learn how to deal with and face up to difficult situations. But, like, we couldn't. We couldn't even be, we couldn't, like, we could only applaud our NHS workers for about two months. Right. Until they got bored and, like, said, oh, can we go back to work now? It's like, well, no, you can't because mm. people are dying. Um, and people started getting grumpy, and, and I'm like, "That's that's just capitalism. That's capitalism. Like we're kind yes. of like we have to. It's all about put, it, all all this kind of anti-vax stuff is like centering yourself first. Yep. Like it is literally like my comfort. My like my comfort matters more than other people's health. And it's you ironic know? because it's like that's not even good on individual level in no way is that good on individual level you are (laughs) and like there are certain there are certain like i have a friend who has like extreme vaccine reactions so unfortunately she is one of the rare i want to emphasize this rare people who it's not best for her to get boosters for the vast majority of people (laughs) it's good to do that shit you know to protect people like my friend who is is pro vaccine in every other way it's like you know like the, the reason people have managed to live longer so far is like vaccines have been a huge part of that it's a miracle 
Yeah, and this mistrust, suddenly this mistrust of experts, that's what scares me the most. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, so, because and I always try to take it to the extremist people. Like, so, so if you go, I'm saying, like, if you go to a doctor, a cancer doctor, and they tell you you've got cancer and you need to have chemotherapy or something, are you going to not listen to them because you, because it's too uncomfortable for you? Or are you going to just, or are you going to listen to them? Like, what are you going to do? What, do, what does everyone do in that situation? They listen to the doctors, right? Mm-hmm. So why is it any different with, you know, with vaccines, you know, kind of, you know, it's because it's more uncomfortable for you and you have to make some sacrifices. Well, yeah, that's life, you know, being a good human being. But yeah, like you say, capitalism is not set up for this kind of thing. It's uh, because capitalism makes humans into machines and we're just machines for the system. You know, we're not meant to have feelings or emotions or well-being or mental health and stuff, you know, like or grief or whatever. Um, and that's why it's one of the one of the many reasons it's such a fraud system. Mm-hmm. And I think like I'm, you know, I'm almost angry that just looking forward at the scope of work I'll be able to offer. It's like giving people a last bit of dignity in a system that's utterly failed them. I feel like that's what I'm setting myself up to do. So if I'm not radicalized now, I'm I'm certainly going to be radicalized once I've gone through a whole career of this, you know. Um, And like, oh, I what you said earlier about like at the beginning of the pandemic, having hope that it would, you know, change things for the better. I remember thinking that too. And I also want to point out that, like, I don't think that hope was misplaced because we are talking about this and agreeing that this is a moment where people can choose to become more conscious people and more aware people, more compassionate people. And there are people who maybe will listen to this or maybe are just out existing in the world that this idea resonates with deep even if it's even if they are caught up in their lives and not able to like engage with it i'm i know that there are people who are like this isn't working we need something different and it's not just unconscious people walking around up out there and like i i will i will hold on to hope until i'm dead because I that's just me. Uh, I'm a hopeful person too. I am. I, I'm. That's who I am. I can't not be hopeful. Yeah. Um. You know. I, yeah. Um. I'll hold on to every any kind of hope I have. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, and um. Yeah. <laughs> um. We have to. You know. You have to kind of just make a better world where you are, and then hopefully other people can get drawn into that and. Yeah. And just showing how you in how you grieve. So if I, you know, my if my dad passes away in the next few years to show in how I do deal with that, what healthy grief looks like, you know. Um so um I hope I can do that. Um but um yeah. Wow. This has been really good. I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Really. Yeah. It's been great. I love talking about this stuff because it's it's so important and we never get I never get to talk about it with anybody, really, not many people anyway. And so to have these conversations and, you know, putting them out there in the world is, is really, really important. So hmm. thank you. Yeah. And I hope we can talk more about this um another yeah. time. I would love that. Yeah. And I, I hope that um I think like 
sort of something that I felt uh, after I was initially grieving my stillbirth. Like, uh, I actually remember I, I sort of dipped my toe into the water of like trying to be somebody who was out there talking about my grief while I was still going through it and trying to just engage people on the topic. One, because I was lonely, needed somewhere to share it. And two, because I was like, this is so important. Everybody should know about this. And I felt that at times that pulled me away from the very personal, muddy aspects of it that I really needed to spend time with. And I can't help but feel that this is my advice to you as a, as a death doula, I suppose. As a person who has a podcast that talks about this sort of stuff regularly, I hope that you will protect your own boundaries with the grief that you have now, like the anticipatory grief, the grief that you may feel soon in regards to your dad. I, I hope for you that that is something that you can protect until you have stuff that is like cured enough that you're ready to share it with people because that's, mm. really, that's really sacred energy. Yeah. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you very much. Um, and how can people kind of connect with you and your, your work? Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Virginia Spots, S-P-O-T-T-S. Uh, you can listen to the Sheridan tapes if you're into spooky stories. But yeah, generally, um, I am just myself on Twitter and Instagram, and I'll be posting more about my death doula stuff as that develops. Excellent. Great. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Thank you.